Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We shall be looking starting in verse 24. Matthew 17, 24. This is a miracle about taxes. And for a context of how ancient taxes worked, From time immemorial, probably even before the flood, it says in the Bible that cities were built prior to the flood. There was probably a governor, a mayor, a a military leader who wanted to build something and he wanted money to do it so he would tax or just take and take the money and use it for his own purposes and When it's talking about the temple tax, that is different than the Roman tax. The way the Romans would work is that they would invade a country like Israel and they wouldn't wipe it out. The Assyrians were famous for wiping out entire civilizations and taking the people and putting them into their army to fight the battles for them. What Rome did is they would conquer a land like Greece or like Israel and they would not destroy the economy. So the economy would keep going. People would continue to grow food. Markets would still be open. Any trade they have would still be going on. And then they would send in people to collect a percentage of the economy as a tax. And that money was sent To Rome. Now, in the Bible, we have two named Roman tax collectors. The first was Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus, when he got converted, made comments about his cheating and how would they cheat. Well, the Romans would come to Zacchaeus, a Jewish person, and hire him as a tax collector. And they might say, We want $20 a year from everybody in your region. And Zacchaeus would say, okay. He would get a scroll with people's names on it so he could check them off and make a ledger. But nobody else was told that it was a $20 tax. And so Zacchaeus could go and charge $40 and say, the Romans said that it is a $40 tax. And you knew nothing different. So you would pay your $40 and Zacchaeus would pocket 20 and give 20 to Rome. That is how the tax collectors got very, very rich. Zacchaeus and Matthew are the two tax collectors that are named. There are other tax collectors that Jesus ate meals with. And that's what the Pharisees criticized him about, that he ate He ate uh, meals with tax collectors, and the Jews did not like Roman-employed tax collectors because they were raising money for the enemy. The enemy, Rome, was an occupying army. There was armies. There was Pilate, the governor, 
in Jerusalem, and so they were taking money from Jewish people and giving it to the enemy. And that was considered a traitorous act, and so people did not look highly on these tax collectors. But this particular tax is known as a two drachma tax. And you say, wow, what's that? What is this all about? Various countries, including Israel, had from way back uh, a tax on the people for things that are going on. For example, if you look back in Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is Moses giving the instructions of God on how the Levites, how the temple workers were supposed to work when land was being given out. After they claimed the promised land, the Levites got no land. The Levites didn't get a farm. The, the Levites didn't get a herd of sheep. They got nothing except the temple work. And so they lived near the temple, sometimes in the temple or the tabernacle. And it started out with the tabernacle. And then when Solomon came, he built the temple and the Levites continued their work but yet in the temple. And so back in Leviticus, it's also mentioned in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, God tells them that the Levites, because they don't do any uh, productive work like a farm or a herd of sheep, they need money to live on. And so God instituted what is known as the two drachma tax. He said every year... The Levites are supposed to go out into Israel and collect a two drachma tax from every male 20 years to 50 years. So if you're 19, you don't pay it. If you're 51, you don't pay it. But in between, you do pay the tax. And all it says in the Old Testament is that this is supposed to be done annually. Tradition brought it up where the Levites said, well, for calendar keeping, let's do it around Passover. Because around Passover, people are going to be coming back to their hometowns, the houses are going to be full. It's going to be easy to collect this two drachma tax around Passover. And so that's why they're doing it here, because this is around the Passover time. It is coming into Passover. The strange thing about the two drachma tax, which, as I said, goes all the way back to Moses. So a couple thousand years, the two drachma tax has been in effect, and it still is. Nobody, not the Assyrians, not the Greeks, not the Romans, not Israel, ever minted a two drachma coin. We have found coins, we have lots of coins of the ancient time, and we've looked at the coins, and we found shekels, and we found denarius, and we found staters, and we found other coins that we know the names of, but nobody ever minted a two drachma coin. Now it says back in Leviticus, what does two drachma equal? Two drachma equals one shekel, okay? The Romans called shekels staters. And so that's why if you have King James, it might say a stater down in verse 27. Stater and shekel are the same thing. A shekel is four drachma. 
And so we don't know, people look at this and they marvel. Thousands of years, this is, I mean, a tax from God. God said, this is how much you pay. It is called in Leviticus and First and Second Chronicles, half a shekel sometimes, two drachma another time. Nobody ever invented a two drachma coin. And if you cut a shekel in half, like pieces of eight, we early America, it would be an invalid coin. So they didn't cut coins in half to do them. So a tradition arose that when the temple tax was paid back in the time of Moses and Joshua and Samuel and these sorts of people, you always paid it for two people. Two people showed up, gave a shekel, and said, there, this is for us too. Because you couldn't give change because a smaller coin did not exist. All that to say, the people who are collecting this, who are Levi's, and they come and they find Peter. And they find Peter because they're scared of Jesus or because they don't want to debate Jesus. And so they ask Peter, does Jesus pay the temple tax? Okay? And Peter says simply, yes. And I like the way that they read it. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Which is kind of a double negative. And so Peter should say, no, my teacher does not not pay the tax, but... The point is clear. They're saying, does Jesus going to pay the temple tax? And Peter says, yes. Peter has been with Jesus for two and a half years. So he's seen this cycle come by twice. This is the third time he's seen this cycle. And he's looked with his own eyes. Jesus pays the tax. Okay, this is not lying. It is just something that Peter knows from personal experience. The tax is being paid by Jesus. Okay. So that's the setup, the context of the miracle. So then Peter goes into the house, and there's, uh, and there's Simon. And uh, something else on the two drachma tax. Uh, in the time of Jesus, that was collected for the temple. It was salary for the Levites in 70 A.D., the Romans level the temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. This is historically known. Uh, all the Bible was written prior to that because nobody in the Bible mentions the temple being destroyed, which they would, and so that's kind of a timing of the Bible. The Bible was done by 70 AD. In 70 AD, the Romans had had enough of the Jewish attitude and so they brought in an army and they leveled the temple removing stone from stone as Jesus had predicted that every stone of the temple would be removed in its stead the Romans built a pagan temple and in order to stick it to the Jews they also charged the Jews two drachma a year to fund the pagan temple. So this is, the Romans knew about the tax and they wanted to stick it to the Jews because they didn't like the fact that Jews had an exclusive religion that wasn't of Romans. And so the taxes are demanded and Peter says, yes, Jesus pays the tax and there doesn't seem to be an argument there and then he goes into the house. And Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? 
From who do kings of the earth take a toll or the tax? From the sons or from others? Now, if you've watched any news or anything, you know that we seem to be focused on the monarchy of England. Okay? England has a new king because the queen died. And what, you know, it's, it's very fortunate that we have this example because we don't have a king. Uh, there are lots of kings in the world. Even today, we do not have one. And so looking at something about a king, a single person getting a tax, we don't have that. Now, the new king in Britain is King Charles III. That's the name he took for being king. And he has sons. He has two sons. And let's say that King Charles gets up in the morning and he wants to remodel his bathroom. Okay? And he says, why should I pay for remodeling the bathroom? I'm going to institute a tax. And this is legal from way, 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 way back. If you read in the Bible back in uh, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, you have Solomon. Solomon's building the temple. And he taxed like nobody's business the people of Israel a, a large percentage of their income. You think your taxes are high. Solomon took, basically, if you built it, he'd take it and use it for the temple. It was a very expensive temple, and he taxed heavily. And part of the uh, splitting of the kingdom was when uh, Rehoboam was asked, are you going to keep this tax going after Solomon had died? And Rehoboam said, well, I'm going to triple it, basically. And so that's the kingdom split. And the kingdom was ripped away from the line of David. And there's examples throughout the Old Testament where there are kings, both uh, Jewish and not, and them putting down big taxes. And so for King Charles, there is... There is book, as it were. There are laws which says he can do this. So he needs so many thousands of pounds to remodel this bathroom. What do you think? Does he go to Prince William, who's next in line? Uh, I go to the gym across the street, and there's 21 TVs when you're there at the gym. And when this whole uh, king thing was going on, there was all sorts of stuff on the morning shows, on the TVs. And one thing I found fascinating is they figured out, now that Charles is king, they figured out succession of who's going to take the throne after Charles down to 15 people. They've got them all named. They've got them all lined out. So Charles is thinking, ha, I got 15 people here that can give me money. So does he go to Will and say, Will, give me 20 pounds. I want to remodel my bathroom. And Will says, King Charles, take a hike. He doesn't have to pay. Why didn't he have to pay? Because he's in the royal line of succession. He is a son of the king. And we would consider it dumb if a king starts taxing his own family because that's basically taxing himself. If Prince or King Charles wants a remodeled bathroom, he needs to look outside of Buckingham Palace at all the people walking the street and tax them. 
The King James says strangers. It says uh, do, do, uh, from their sons or from others is the ESV. King James says strangers. The word for others means unknown to me. And that is what a king does is they look out over the, the populace of their nation and they say each of them needs to give me $20 so that I can remodel my bathroom, but my kids and my grandkids and my cousins and my brothers and uncles and all those that are living with me and related to me, they are exempt because they are part of the royal family. And so he presents this to Peter, and Peter knows about kings. There's King, there's King Herod is alive during this time. King Herod has taxed the people. King Herod was known as the Builder. That is kind of his nickname. He built all sorts of stuff, including the current temple. Now, he didn't do it for free. The people who used the temple paid for it through a tax. He collected a tax, and he built the temple, and he built the palace, and he built a bunch of roads for the Romans, and he built other things using other people's money through a tax. And so Peter knows this. I mean, he can look out his window and see there's a world full of kings. And so Peter understands and says, well, when Jesus says, when you tax people, do you tax your family or do you tax others? And Peter says, others. And Jesus says, right, right on the nose. He says, therefore, the sons are free. Now, you got to take a intermission here. And what is Jesus getting at? Jesus is known as the Son of God. And the two drachma tax is for the improvement of the temple. And what is the temple? The temple is the house of God. That is where God would hang out. I would go to the Holy of Holies once a year to be in the presence of God, to gain forgiveness at Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which is in about three weeks, is that the Jews will be celebrating God atoning for their sins. And this is what would go on once a year in the temple. Now, at this point in time, God got fed up and so the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, was not there. When you go into the Holy of Holies, it, during the time of Jesus, it would be dark and no life except for you. That's why Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was so startled when he goes into the Holy of Holies and there's an angel saying, your wife is going to give us a son, and his name is going to be John. It was such a shock because the Holy of Holies is empty of life. It still had the table of the presence. It still had the Ark of the Covenant. It still had the menorah lampstand, but God's presence had left, and that's kind of talked about, people think, in the symbolism of Ezekiel is where people say that's the evidence of God leaving the temple. Uh, we don't know exactly when it happened, but it definitely happened for at least a little while when 
the people went to Babylon because if they're in Babylon and the temple is here, God's going to not hang out where they're not. And so the sons are free. And so the question Jesus is getting to is, God lives in the temple. He's the son of God. If tax is being collected for the temple, he shouldn't have to pay. He shouldn't have to pay because he is family. Just like Prince William and Prince William's kids don't pay Charles for the tax, Jesus does not have to pay for the upkeep of God's house. That's what he's saying. And it's logical, and it's legal, and it's true. Okay? Jesus is exempt from the two drachma tax because he's family. But then he says, however, not to give an offense. So he could prove the point. He could go outside to the tax collectors and explain all this, and they'd either laugh at him or stone him because they didn't accept him at this point that he was family. But Jesus is saying this in a kind of private way with the apostles. And even though it's true, Jesus is not going to press the point. Jesus is not going to demand his rights. Jesus is not going to stand up and say, I deserve this, give this to me. Instead, he says, Peter... Go to the sea, which would be the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, the Lake of Galilee, and cast in a hook. Now, Peter was a fisherman, but this is the only time in the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation that anybody used a hook to catch a fish. We believe they could. We see people today. You go out to the water. And there are people with fishing poles, and they are fishing, and they have a hook. Peter was a commercial fisherman. James and John were commercial fishermen, so they used nets. They wanted a hundred fish, not just one. It would be unable to keep their business going if they just had a hook. But Peter clearly knew what this was. He clearly had a fishing pole or could make one. Okay? But... This is the only time hook fishing is mentioned in the New Testament, as an aside. And he says, throw the hook in. We don't talk about what kind of bait you use. We don't talk about what kind of fish is used. He said, the first fish you catch. When you get it, you open its mouth, and there will be a shekel. And then you go and you pay for Peter and Jesus. Two people pay. One coin. Going back to the book of Leviticus, the book of 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. This is tradition. This is how Jews did things, is two people were paid one coin for the temple tax. Now, it, it ends right there. He says, the fish comes. When you open its mouth, you will find a shekel or a stator. Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. And then it ends. And we call this a miracle. We believe it happened like this. 
We believe Jesus isn't just throwing out words and Peter going, yeah, right, wink, wink, wink. It is something that Peter did. And our belief is, even though it doesn't say, and he did it, we believe that he caught a fish big enough for a, about a, it's, I don't know, it's a little smaller than a quarter. You can get on the internet and find pictures of a shekel. We have millions of them, okay? The, the Romans dropped their coins everywhere when things fell apart. And we don't know what kind of fish it was, but he got the fish, he opened it up, there was a fishy smelling shekel, and he goes and finds the people and says, this is for Jesus and me, okay? And that is the miracle. And when you look at the miracles, there are some miracles you go, okay, feeding the 5,000, really big, you know, huge, but you can kind of, in your mind, kind of imagine the multiplying of the bread as it is being broken. You can kind of think about how, you know, what it looked like, I guess, is the, not how it was done. It was done. It's a miracle. So we don't know how it was done. Some of the healings we look at and we go, that's, that's fantastic. This is, in the category of miracles, odd. Okay? Jesus didn't have to do it. Jesus had no money. Jesus was dirt poor. The only thing Jesus owned was the clothes on his back, and they gambled for that on the cross. Jesus did not have a shekel. But Peter had a job. James and John had a job. Everybody else had jobs. He could say, anybody got a shekel that I can have for the temple tax, and they would have showered him with shekels, okay? He didn't have to do this. And so you, you question why he did it. And people are all over the board. If you, read the, if you read the commentators, people say, well, Jesus was dirt poor and he didn't want to owe anybody. And so he miraculously made a shekel and paid for Peter and himself, that's sure, why not? He is proving the point, though, that if the son of the king is going to be paying the shekel, why not make the shekel out of thin air and pay for it that way? Since God is miraculous and Jesus is miraculous, why not pay the tax in a miraculous way. And if you try to wrap your head, I read lots of commentaries on, on things, and a lot of commentators want to explain how this was done. And some people say, well, it was a fish that was created as soon as Peter threw the hook in, or it was a fish that had been there for a while, but the shekel was created, or the shekel wasn't put into his mouth until Peter pulled him out of the water, or something of this nature. I don't know, but it is, I mean, this is miraculous. The working out of how Jesus pulled this off, Jesus didn't just say, hey, look, what's behind your ear, Peter? It's a shekel. I mean, it, he could have pulled it out of the ground. He could have, he works a miracle to really point to the fact that he's really good at this that it is a miracle that boggles the mind. It's a simple miracle. It's a coin in a fish's mouth. 
But it boggles your mind if you figure out how much control Jesus has over every fish in the sea and every shekel coin in Rome. He knows where they all are. Some people just said, well, there was a fish that just found a shekel on the bottom of the lake and decided to eat it. And so that's the fish that Peter caught. And the logistics of that is still amazing to get your mind around. Jesus is in absolute control of every fish and every coin in the Roman Empire and the whole world. And he knew this was going to happen. He made it happen. I don't know, something about something. But Jesus is truly a miracle worker. And so, what do we do with this? People have looked at this and said, Huh, I pay taxes. Maybe I better go fishing. But Jesus is not telling you to pay your taxes from fishing because the relationship between you and the government, you are not a, I don't think anybody here, is a direct descendant of the Bidens, for example. That when taxes that come from Congress, are you a direct descendant of anybody in Congress and can you claim, well, I am Nancy Pelosi's great-great-great-granddaughter or something of that nature. I don't have to pay the tax. That's not how it works. Because according to our system, we have no king and therefore do not have a bloodline that relates us to leadership. And so we don't have the same sons and daughters that are exempt like they do in the monarchy in England. The monarchy in England is a bloodline. It is a family business. We don't have that in America. Other people have said, well, what about church? Well, we don't tax you in church. We don't say you have to pay this for the upkeep of the church, everything that is given to a church from people is voluntary. We call it a tithe or an offering. Offering is voluntary. And so there is no relationship between being exempt. If you don't want to put anything in the offering, don't put anything in the offering and nobody can make you. There is no requirement. There is no tax in a church. And so for the modern Western people, the only application of this is that, let's say, April 15th comes along, and you owe more taxes than you have. You look at the taxes, and you look at your checking account, and your checking account is much less than the taxes you owe, okay, which seems to be a thing. We've done it. And so you look at that, and you say, wait a minute, Jesus can do anything. He's absolute control over everything in this miracle and every other miracle that's in the Bible is we can look at the power of Jesus, 
the amazing miracle-working power of Jesus. Now, Jesus limited himself. He limited his godness a little bit when he was on earth. When he goes to ascend at the end of Matthew, he says, All power and authority has been given to me. Okay? Jesus, Jesus graduated, as it were, by going on the cross. And even though he voluntarily, as we talk about, we read in Philippians, he emptied himself while he was here. A temporary thing. People debate what that means. But when he was done, when he succeeded and was resurrected and was ascending, he says, it's all his now. And you go, what does that mean? Look in the book of Revelation. Who is doing all of the heavy lifting? It's Jesus. God the Father is on the throne, directing things, saying things. But the person opening the scroll, the person sending fire down, the person sending angels to do this, the person doing everything in the book of Revelation is Jesus. And so if you think Jesus was powerful and amazing when he walked the earth, you can now make that exponentially bigger. There is nothing that you can ask Jesus that he cannot do. If you need lower taxes or a bigger checking account, which is the fix for that, you can pray about it. You can pray about it hard. You can pray about it long. You can pray for wisdom as to what to do. You can pray for understanding on how to lower your taxes. You can pray for all sorts of stuff and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus will not even break a sweat doing that for you. Whether he will or not, the Bible is, talks a lot about that, about what blocks prayers and things like that. But we can bring everything to God. And when it comes to taxes, we have to stay within the law. There's all sorts of things you can do within the law. You can pay fewer taxes. You can take deductions. You can do this and donate that and do all these things to pay fewer taxes. And we can plan to do that. But Jesus also says, however, even though Jesus was in his rights, don't give an offense. And that's another thing that Christians need to live like. We need to live as unoffensive people. And you say, what does that mean? If politics is everywhere, and if I take a political position, and I wear it out in front, I talk about it all the time. It is who I am, this political position or that one. And then God gives us an opportunity to witness to somebody I've got to chip away all the political garbage that I put out there because they will see any statements I make about Christ as political. But if I am living an unoffended, offensive life, if I am being at peace with everyone, as Paul says, 
then when the opportunity to share Christ comes, I don't have any baggage to get rid of. I don't have any previous statements that I have to correct. I don't have to do anything to qualify my belief in Christ because I have been unoffensive. I have been living at peace with somebody. And I think that is one thing that we really need to work at as Christians today is we say, well, believe in Christ. And they think, oh, well, that's a this statement or a that statement as opposed to a true statement. And so we need to be very aware of the messages that we send that could be corrupting our witness. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I praise your name. I praise your name for this miracle and all the other miracles and the miracles upon miracles. And I just pray that you would cause us to believe in a very deep and great way that you are in fact a miracle worker that can do anything. And while we are believing that, teach us to live at peace with others and to be less offensive in this very offending world. Lord, we praise you for this and ask your blessing on the meal to come. We ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.